This morning, uh, I'd like to tell you a few stories, and uh, the first one starts once upon a time. So once upon a time, there was a little boy whose mother was very sick, <coughs> and it so happened that uh, he accidentally fell out of this world and into another one, and when he arrived in this other world, he was given an apple as a gift. And he took this apple and brought it back to our world and handed it to his mother. His mother ate it, and she was healed. And they took this apple, and they went out back, and they buried it, and it grew into the most amazing tree. Um, and what was amazing about this tree was that on a still, breezeless day in this world, if you watched, the leaves would kind of, like, rustle and dance a little bit. If in the other world from which it came, a strong enough breeze was blowing against the tree that it was originally plucked from. And this tree that danced with the leaves and wind of another world was eventually cut down and fashioned into a wardrobe in which four children would hide and one day fall through the other side into the world from which the apple came, a world called Narnia. So when I read that story from the Chronicles of Narnia, I was like, like, I just, as a kid, it just caught my attention that there'd be a tree somewhere in the world that would rustle with the wind of another one. Like, I just, I loved that idea. And I didn't really know why. I mean, I could have been maybe 11 or 12 the first time I read that. And I remember that one little passing part just catching me. And I think it might be because that's, in some sense, what we're longing for. Our story this morning in the, the book of Acts does not begin once upon a time. It's a, a true story. And yet, in some sense, it is very much the story of men that are moved along by a power that belongs to another world. And so, uh, I want to look at this with you guys. I want to look at what this power that is pressing against their hearts, that is shaping them, that is pointing them, that is moving them out away from themselves, and why that is quite different than any love that you've seen in this world. Uh, we're in a series called uh, Our Hearts Burn Within, and it's from this comment that two followers uh, spoke to one another, two followers of Jesus, after Jesus opens their eyes to all that he is and all that he has done for them through the scriptures. And this morning, I want to show you that for your hearts to burn with, with the desire for Christ, to burn with a passion for other people, to, to live for the purpose and mission of God in this world, you must first turn to the love of God and then be turned by it back out into the world. And, and it's this interaction of being moved along by a power that's not quite from here, but moves the things that are here quite powerfully. That's what I want to look at with you. So we're going to be in the book of Acts in the Bible. It's chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. It's going to appear on the screen. So if you want to read along with me there, uh, that'd be probably helpful for you. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Uh, it goes like this, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, that is the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And le leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple 
with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he, that is the beggar, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So this morning, what I want to do is start by clarifying this story. And after that, I want to show you three observations that I think are important to the story. And then lastly, I want to throw, show you three ways that the love of Christ shapes us and then turns us out towards people around us. So first, let me try and explain the story. I mean, obviously, we just read it, but sometimes it's helpful to kind of go like, hold, hold on, let me, let me say what you just saw, okay? So the story is the beginning of the end of the early peace of the Christian movement in Jerusalem. So far, in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus has established his church, filled them with his spirit, and brought them together in a new kind of community. A new kingdom of God has been established. But in Acts chapter 3, we see the first of three consecutive stories where this miracle or sign or wonder will happen, and the gospel is proclaimed, and then the religious leaders are not happy about that and begin to present more and more attack and persecution and resistance to this, uh, this thing that's going on. And each consecutive story gets worse and worse until finally it culminates in the, um, the brutal attack on God's people and the scattering of them out of Jerusalem and into the world. So Acts chapter 3, the storm clouds of persecution are very much on the horizon of this story. And it's important to consider that for both the actions of this man as well as what this story celebrates. And I want to show you that, but that for now is what you need to know. So, again, our story is kind of funny if you think about it this way, right? The, the beginning of the persecution of God's people is some beggar asking for a dollar. It's a very simple moment in time. It's a very normal moment in Jerusalem. And what happens next is very much not normal. John and Peter both notice this man, and for a reason the story does not give or explain, they just seem to know that God wants to heal him. So they walk up to the cripple, they tell him that they have no money for him, but what they do have is the, the power and authority of Jesus, uh, and they simply tell him to walk. Which again, if you notice in the story, no abracadabra, no elaborate prayer service, no fasting, like it's just like, stand up. And he does and and it seems to be immediate like it's like like he just he just stands up and he starts walking and leaping and jumping and singing i don't know if you heard the repetition but it mentions that he walks like like four times like okay we get it he's walking but that's a big deal because for 40 years he was not so what happens next is this crowd of people rush together around Peter and John, and this crippled man is, like, just draped over them. And this becomes the context of a sermon where Peter points at this crippled man and says, it, it's, this isn't something that we did. The Jesus that you rejected and crucified, the Jesus that you killed, it was in his name that this man was healed, and it is in his name that you can be forgiven also, and it uses this phrase that times of refreshing would come upon you, that it, it, like quite literally he's looking at that healing and saying, this healing can happen for your sin by the one that you sinned against. And now, you know, the religious leaders hear about this. They're not too thrilled because that was the guy that they personally saw to his execution. So, you know, kind of awkward. They 
start cranking up the persecution. And that's, that's where we're headed. But you guys can see that this is, in some sense, a very normal conversation and story, a very normal set of events, but altogether different. And it's that difference that I want to show you guys. It, it's not just the supernatural thing that happens here that makes this story unique. It's the compulsion of these men, why they went and did what they did. So there's three observations that I want to show you. And then again, three ways that the love of Christ shapes us and then the love of Christ turns us. So first, if you notice this phrase, the name of Jesus is mentioned inside of this text. You guys notice that it says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. What does that mean? And this is an actual question I brought to some of the guys in my discipleship group because I did not know what it meant. And like some people use this, I think, inappropriately, almost like a magic incantation. You know, like, abracadabra, ubi in the name of Jesus. And now because you said that thing, it's going to happen. And I don't really think that's what's going on here. And then there's this other thing that we do, at least what I do, is it's almost like I take that and I hang it on the end of my prayers like an ornament on a Christmas tree. Like, I don't know why it goes there, but I know it goes here. You know, so I end my prayers like, in Jesus' name. That, that's where that goes, you know. <laughs> I don't know why, but it seems pretty enough, and it belongs in this place, so I put it there. And that's not very helpful either, because I don't think that they were just putting a placeholder. Like, they were like, oh, what were we supposed to say? Oh, in Jesus' name, you know, walk, like... Well, just say walk then. Don't, don't do say something meaningless. So I, I did a little reading and digging. I found somebody smarter than me, and he explained it really succinctly. So I'm going to use his definition. John Stott said that when the disciples presented this idea, what they were saying is that everything Jesus is and everything Jesus has done is wrapped up in his name. In light of everything Jesus is and in light of everything that he has done, walk. That's what they were saying. And if this is what it means, then it's synonymous with another Christian-y, bible term that's very important. Bringing glory to Jesus. Making known who he is and what he has done. This is what they're doing. So what does it mean to do something in Jesus' name like they are doing? It means to do something so that others would see all that Jesus is and all that he has done. And that's what I believe is happening here. His name is being known. His name is being magnified, exalted, explained, expressed. His name is being made known by this action. So what exactly do we see about all that Christ is and about all that Christ has done by this healing? Well, for starters, uh, he has ambassadors that can go on his behalf and simply speak to feet, knowing that, that their king has sent them and say, walk, and those feet are going to listen to that ambassador who was sent on behalf of that king. That's a pretty powerful king. Like, I don't know any other leader, authority, or boss that can walk up to someone's feet and say, not broken, and it, it actually work. You know, like, that's a big deal. But what's specifically pointed out by the apostles in this moment is that they point at that miracle and they say, this is what this means. It means he's alive. It means that the one you killed, that all of you saw publicly executed, he lives. And it was his name and all that he is and all that he's done that healed this man. And if that's true, he's been exalted by God as your king. And you can have him, him who you rejected, you can have. It, it, it was a it's a whisper to us that the healing we desperately need for our soul is also accomplished by Christ because of all that he is and all that he has done for us on the cross. Not only can God forgive our sins, John and Peter 
represent, but they can also, he can also change us by his love. And this, I believe, is the second thing that's important to know about this story. So uh, if you were to take a very small boat and put it in a very big river and point the nose of that boat towards the current, what, what's going to happen, right, is it's going to sit there for a minute. But eventually, very slowly, it's going to start turning the direction that the current is going. And this is the same thing that the love of God does for your heart. When you point your heart, when you point your affections, when you point your, your, your entire being at Christ, it will catch you. You will be caught by this thing, and for a moment, it will hold you. But then very soon, it will begin to turn you in the direction that the current of his love is going, which is namely out from you and towards others. And that, I think, is what is distinctly Christian about what John and Peter do. It is this being captured by the love of Christ and turning their souls towards another that I think we're seeing here. And, and maybe that might feel like a stretch for you, but I'm telling you, I, the more, and I don't want to show you this more later, right? Like the three ways that were shaped by God's love and sent by it. I want to prove this soon. But what I see in their interactions is the telltale signs of a heart being pressed against by the river of God's love, the, the rustling of the leaves from a wind that blows from another world. It's, it's I think it's here. And if it's true that it's here, it can also be true for you and I. That this is what it means to love like Christians. What makes this love unique is not just from where it is from the supernatural nature of it, but rather from the supernatural nature of where it comes from, that their arms are being extended with nothing in them, but they're dripping wet with the river of God's grace that's flowing out of their hearts and has pushed them towards him, that, that there's something different about this interaction. And the last thing is, I think, the direction of where this river is going, the trajectory of where this love is headed. So the last thing that we see that's important to know about this story is that there is brokenness in our world. Newsflash. <laughs> like, that's not surprising, and it's pretty evident from this story. But what I think is more surprising from this story is the trajectory of God's solution for that brokenness. Brokenness is obvious. What is a little surprising to me is God's solution for this brokenness. So where is brokenness obvious? Well, bodily and physically. Visibly, this man is broken and has been that way since birth. But what I think is more surprising about God's solution for this story is that I firmly believe the solution that God holds out for this man is not healing. It's that the name of Christ would be known to this man through his healing. The, the, the end goal of this healing is not so the man could walk, 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 walk. The end goal is so that this man would see, 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 see the, the love of Christ that has changed him. Now, listen, I should prove that because that's a pretty tough statement. So here's two ways I think that this story is showing us this. First, the way that it celebrates what's going on. The celebration of this story as it goes through the, act, uh, the rest of chapter 3 does not culminate in a man was healed. Cool. It culminates in this, this idea of the, the apostles coming back from this persecution that they face and saying, the name of Christ has to be known. Uh, this, this crowd of people staring and marveling and wondering, not at the healing, which is what Peter immediately turns their attention away from, but at the name of Jesus, all that he is and all that he has done. 
So what this story celebrates shows us what God is celebrating in your story. That healing may not be the highest end goal of his life for you. His name being made known through your life, which probably includes healing and kindness, but also probably includes suffering. And that's the second part of this story that I need you to remember. Remember where this story is heading. This man gets up and takes these steps into the temple. These are his first physical steps, and they are literally the first physical steps towards suffering, towards immense persecution by God's people. This is the beginning of the end of God's peace in Jerusalem over his, over his church. This is dancing and singing towards sorrow. And if that is true, then what it means for you and for me is that sometimes, the high, I'm sorry, all the time, God's highest goal for you is that his name would be known. All that he has done for you and all that he is. And that it would be made known through your life. And so, let me ask you a hard question, okay? What if the sign to all the world around you that there is a God who lives and loves you, who is kind and good and forgiving, who is enough? What if the sign is in your suffering and in your sorrow, in your waiting, in your sickness, in your lack, you turned your heart and met the gaze of Christ who looks on you and weeps for you and suffered in your place and promises you that all things will be made right one day and holds you even now as you wait and then turns you with the pressure of this, this immense satisfying love and reaches out your hands which have absolutely nothing in them except sorrow and suffering. And you say, I've got nothing to give you, but I've got him and it's enough for me. You can have this too. Believe. Hold on. I don't even know how I am, but I'm holding on to him. You can too. Reach out for him. Like, if that's the sign to the world, which is broken and not surprised, then I think there is room to say what I'm about to say next. To follow Christ will absolutely, according to this story, mean he has healing and power over your sickness. He loves you and he's kind. He wants to mend your life in every possible way, both now and forever. But in the meantime, there will be sorrow and suffering and loss as well. And you may face sickness, longing, waiting, wanting, and even death. Now, for a little while, but then never again. And the way to endure that is by turning your heart and facing the love of Christ that endured it first and most for you on the cross and then moves you out into the world to live a life with purpose. Even when there's nothing in your hands, you can still extend them and say, I have nothing, but I have Christ here. So these are three observations that are important about this story. Now I want to just turn your eyes with me towards this love that shaped these men and then turned them out into the world around them. I want to Watch the leaves rustle a little on their tree, if you will, and, and, and see what that means for you and I. Um, so the first thing that we see, that, that I, I, I see here, is uh, there's this really weird focus on in this story of them looking at each other. Did you notice that? It's like Peter looked at him, John looked at him, and then, then he looked at him, and then he said, look at us, and then he looked at him, and it's like, oh, all right, we we get it. There's a lot of eye contact going on here. You know, there's a couple of close talkers in Jerusalem one day, you know. 
So why is this such a big deal? I'm going to read what it says. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, apparently he sees them. He asked them for money, and Peter said, look at us. And then the man gave him his attention. So now he's really looking at him, expecting to get something from him. So why is this so remarkable? You guys know that this doesn't happen in other stories in the Bible. There's a lot of people that get healed. This little interaction of, like, look at me, look at us, look at us. You know, like that, that thing. Like, you know. I think this is... I don't want to overblow this, but I do think it speaks to something about brokenness, and I think it also shows us something unique about their love. Brokenness is really hard to look at. If you don't think that's true or you don't know exactly what I mean, I want you to get in your car after service and go to either Fort Pierce or Martin County, go find a beach, and find a homeless person and roll up next to them and just stare right at them until you make eye contact. Oh, you just got nervous. All right, listen, I'm not saying should you or shouldn't, shouldn't you help. I'm just saying go experiment and see how hard that would be. What do you do? Probably not look. Why? Because if you make eye contact with them, you will invite their brokenness into your world. And again, this story does have a lot to show us about what we should or shouldn't do to help those that are poor and broken, like quite literally in the physical sense. But that's not, I think, what the heart of this story is after. And so I don't want to go there this morning. There's a lot in the book of Acts that can, we can explore and talk about that. That's fine. Let's keep exploring this as we go through it. The same is true for the, the ideas of suffering that I told you about here a, a couple minutes ago. Let's continue to wrestle with our faith and doubt as we explore the book of Acts. But right now, I just want you to remember and to realize that looking at broken people is hard. And they don't seem to have a problem with it. That's weird. So... Here's where I've seen some broken people in my life and where it's hard to look. There's, you know, imagine, if you will, that there's a mother in, in your life somewhere, and it's hard for you to make eye contact with them, maybe not literally or physically, but in, in some sense, really lock eyes, because if you do, you might have to invite them over to your house, or you might have to share some conversation with them, and they're just a little socially hard to communicate with. And, and that, that level of brokenness, that, oh, I'm just going to look this way. It's everywhere. It's a part of what it means to live in a broken world is if we just keep our eyes up a little higher and the brokenness stays down here, we can travel through this world a little bit less impeded by it. If you're a father, there's a lot of guys in my discipleship group that share a very common sentiment. I've, I've expressed this myself to many of you, so it's not going to surprise any of you guys, but being a dad is hard. And one of the hardest parts of it is you come home from work where you're in total control, or maybe it's chaos, but you know what you're doing, you're on your own, you're like, you know, I'm the king of my castle over here. And then you come in and there's these little humans that you have to try and figure out how to lead into the image of Christ. And that's terrifying because as a father, I am not dumb enough to think that I know how to do that. And so what's hard is to look my son in the eyes and actually make eye contact with him. I mean, in, a, in this sense, because when I do, I see a a level of brokenness that I don't know if I know how to solve. I lack the ability to just say, feet walk, and, and he does. Like, it, it, it's hard for me to be a father, and I know it's hard for many of you to be fathers. And so what we do instead is we turn our attention away from our family, away from our wives, away from our kids, and towards anything else, whether that's TV or sports or gaming or, or, or school or maybe back to work because it's like, here I can control it. <laughs> that impulse to look away, that, that fear of making eye contact, this is something that in this story is just not true about their love. And this is the beginning of what I want you to see of this, this, this other kind of love that has met them, that has turned them, that has 
that is doing something just a little different and makes it altogether Christian. What I believe the reason that these two men approached this broken man is because when they walked with Jesus, there was two things that Jesus did all the time. He looked at broken people, and he walked right up to them, and he fixed them all the time. Now, now, Peter and John were witnesses of that. They, they saw it again and again. Like there's a blind guy, and he's like, not blind. You know, there's a, a dead guy, and he takes him by the hand and says, wake up, and he does. I mean, like, like the absolute fearlessness of Christ's love to make eye contact with brokenness and not blink. Why? Because he was able. He's strong. He, he was God of the universe. This is nothing. He knows how to, this is why he's here. But then on the flip side of that, his ability to make eye contact with them personally in their shame, their guilt, and their sin was profound. John and Peter both betrayed Jesus verbally. They ran from him or they, they literally betrayed him. And in that moment, there's a story where across the courtyard, Jesus turns and makes eye contact with Peter the minute he betrays Christ. Eye contact. Why? Because Christ is not ashamed to look at someone who has sinned. You realize that these two men were eyewitnesses to his execution, to his crucifixion. You know what that means? That probably for me, to probably this front, you know, kind of middle section here, they were looking at the eyes of Christ as he hung, bleeding and dying for them, making eye contact with them. I mean, like, it's one thing for us to say, behold the image of Christ. They did. They met eyes with him as he's dying for them. And then later in his resurrection, the, he meets them on a beach and confirms his love for them and, and tells them, like, no, like, do you love me? Yes. Okay, then follow me. Like, come with me. He looks at them in their shame and their failure, and he doesn't look away. And this love, which does not blink in the face of brokenness and does not turn away in the face of sin, is a love that had pressed against them and turned them towards this broken man. Now, here's where I'm going to step away from the Bible and only hold out something very, very fragile, my own experience. I think this is what praying for other people does for us. And I've seen it happen with my son. My son is three or four, okay? He's almost four. It's been a blur. He'll be four in August, relax. My wife somewhere is like, don't, you know. <laughs> like I said, fragile. And uh, because of my own selfishness, because it's just hard to love a three-year-old, uh, the last week or two has been really hard for me as a father, okay? It's also been hard for him as a three-year-old. He's got a hard life. He's three. So this interaction between me and him, I've been tired. I've been exhausted. I've been, I just have felt like a massive failure in my fathering to him, right? So as I'm writing this, I realize, like, if this doesn't work for me, I shouldn't tell you, right? So I tried this just to see what would happen. And I went to God, and I prayed, and I asked him to help me love my son. And what I saw when I was praying to Christ about my son, was Christ's patience towards me, which cooled my, my aggression. And Christ's gentleness and kindness towards me, which smoothed my rough edges. And this commitment to me that no matter what I do or where I go, he's got a plan and he will not let go of me until it's accomplished. That, that his guiding hand on me will not let go. And it's like as I'm looking at him, he turns his eyes and as I follow his gaze, he's looking at my son. That being moved by and turned by. Now I'm looking at my son, and in my peripheral is the God of the universe who loves my son. 
who is staring at him, not with arms crossed, but with arms open, who is, who is longing for him not to shut up and go away, but to, but to come and to speak with him, to, like, come here. Like, I just, I just want Sam so bad. That feeling of Christ for my boy, I don't have to blink If I can't do it, he can, and he loves him more than I do. It's okay. I can go at him. I don't have to be arrogant. I can be humbled because I know in my failures, I've been met with a God that loves me, and I can love him in his failures. Do you guys see that interaction? Okay. I hope that that is true for your soul, and where I found it is praying for other people to my God. Okay? And what it did is it turned me towards the person I was praying for, and what comes out of me now, I hope is empty hands covered in God's grace. This, I believe, is what the Bible means when he says the the love of Christ compels us. This is what it means. It was the second thing that I think this love shapes us with and moves us towards. If you notice the trajectory of where this love is heading is that Christ would be given over. So I think it's important for you to remember that in everyone that you are loving in your life, what they need a lot more than your stuff or your time or your money or your wisdom or your thoughts on their life, especially if they're a skeptic of the claims of Christ, what they need far more than you is Christ who has loved you and changed you and moved you towards them. Now, that's important, and I think all of us, if if you've been in the church for a while, you're like, yeah, they need Jesus more than me. Okay, all right, great, but think about this for a second, all right? What that means then is that you can pray for these crazy things to happen in your friends' lives, supernatural things. Like, do it. Pray that they get woken up by a dream or a vision. Do it. Why not? Right? I mean, if Jesus says yes, sweet. If he says no, okay. But but here's what you can also do. You can door dash sushi and send it to them because they've had a really hard day. And if you're being compelled by the love of Christ and it's coming from hands that are dripping wet with the, with the love of Christ, then that sushi will, will taste of the things of Christ. Like, you, you guys see that anything done in Christ's name will result in the same thing that happened here. That the supernatural thing was not just the healing, it was the seeing of Christ. The goal of this healing was that. So the goal of anything you do should be that, and it is by God. And so Anything you do as an act of love, flowing from what Christ has done, out through your hands towards another person, anything dripping with the grace of Christ, it's powerful. Anything. And that should just like, I mean, for me, I'm like, yeah. Like, I, I can invite somebody over for dinner and it just be like, their whole life might change, you know? Like, maybe not immediately. Like, they might not start standing up and dancing or something. But, like, like eventually, what if, like, all the pressure of that, like, they started hungering and thirsting for the things of God because they kept tasting it, splashing over and spilling over on the things that I love them with. This is the way that Christ brings his kingdom into the world. Some of you just went totally on Mandalorian there. This is the way that Christ brings his glory into the world through hands that are opened wide and dripping wet with the grace of the river of his love from which it came. This is the third thing that I want to show you. Loving people will cost you something. Sorry. You guys know how the story ends, right? A beggar draped over two apostles. Who, who's, got the, 
Who won in that scenario? Right? The apostles? No. Listen, as a pragmatic church starter, these guys are really not doing a great job, right? Like, all right, let's go find the guy that can't tithe, can't give, can't serve, and has so much, like, 40 years of emotional baggage. Let's get that guy, and then let's bring him back to the church and say, hey, 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 that's another convert. You're welcome. That's a bad plan. And that's obviously not the goal of this story is to, to show us the wise way to go. This is God's way of doing things. But notice that this is a costly thing. As the beggar is draped over the necks of these apostles, he has been brought up out of nothing, out of being no one, out of being just refuse to be walked over. And he's been brought up into the kingdom of God to be among the brothers of Christ, to be named among the the kingdom of the most high. Like he now has a family and a home and, and a future. He's not alone anymore. He's not forgotten. He's got a mission. He got everything. And all the apostles got was probably a sore neck. If you love people this way, It will cost you something high and holy and sacred to you, your individualism. You cannot love people well. You cannot love people deeply. You cannot do that and expect people to not drape themselves over your neck, not because you are amazing, but because they're still broken. It will cost you you. If you give your time and money and effort away, you don't get to keep that anymore for your dreams. If you open wide your home to bring people into it, you don't get to keep it for your comfort. If you lay your lives down the way that Jesus is pressing you towards, it will cost you you. But it will give you something something that I, I, I think is all, something that is worth it. So, How do we do this? How do we give our lives away? Well, we do it by looking at the one who led the way. When we turn our eyes back to the love of Christ and we see him high and exalted, the king of all glory, setting aside his crown, taking off his robe, shushing the angels for a few decades, and descending down into humanity as a child, living nowhere with no one, growing up as a man of no importance, with no money or power or privilege, living his life perfectly in your place and dying a a criminal's death so that you could cling to his neck and be brought up from your brokenness. This, This is the love of Christ, that you are named a brother of God, means that God is named among you and is not ashamed to do it. Like, it just, I want this to be true of me. That I loved people like, like these men loved this beggar because these men love this beggar the way that Jesus loves me. I want this to be true of you because in, in taking your life like Jesus did and throwing it into the dirt, it feels like you are throwing your life away. You're throwing your money on the ground. You're throwing your time, your comfort, your power, your privilege, your dreams down into the dirt. But if it is soaking wet with the love of Christ, it is a fruit plucked from another world, and it's buried, it's planted, it's doing something. It's down, it's gone from you. Yes, you lost, but it's, it's there, and it's doing something, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to break out one day into new life. New life that you'll step back from and say, that that's far more than I thought it would cost. This is, 
far better than I ever dreamed. The life of Jesus is this trajectory of bearing himself in the love of God so that you would rise up forever. And your lives must bear this shape as well. And that is hard. So the only way to endure that, I believe, is by turning again and again to God's people and God's word. Without seeing again and again renewed and refreshed the image of Christ, all that he is and all that he has done for you, you cannot throw your life down freely and joyfully. There is a prophecy um, about all of this, I think, in Ezekiel. Uh, The prophet sees this vision of a very small trickle of water flowing from the door of the temple. And as he follows it out of the city, it turns into a river with these trees, and then it turns into an ocean. And the, the water that's flowing is bringing healing, it's bringing life and grace, and it's the glory of God being known. It's this image of, of the glory of God covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. And it's coming from a trickle at the temple door. And this is what it says about the fruit trees that are by the river. It's in Ezekiel like 47 or something. Fruit trees of all kinds which grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither nor will their fruit fail. Every month they bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. This story in Acts chapter 3 is the first trickle of the love of God flowing to a man and out from his hands. Splashing down at the literal temple door. And flowing out from Jerusalem over the next 2,000 years, every act of Christian love has moved through this world and brought profound healing and change. Every act of Christian love flowing from his love and out towards others this way, dripping with his grace, it's, it's doing something in this world and you're invited into that. You're invited to be like trees planted beside this river. Bearing fruit, yes, but also giving it out so that others would be both satisfied and healed. And all the while, your leaves rustle with a wind from another world. If you do not go to his love, you cannot do this. And so this week, I beg you, like, here's my benediction, all right? Here's, go and do this, all right? I beg you, if you know his love, go to it this week. Turn to it and be turned by it back out into this world. And if you do not know his love this week, turn to it. And taste and see that everything that God is and everything that he has done for us in Christ is good. Father, we love you and we pray that you would make this true. Make this true of our people. Make this true of our souls. That we would look to you and find you and be moved by you back out into the world around us. God, I pray that the shape of your love would press in on our hearts and would send us out in your name so that all that you are and all that you've done would be made known. God, I just pray that you would help us. Help us to be people that are dripping wet with the love of your grace and freely giving that out to those that are around us. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.